Okay, well, hello everyone. Welcome to the Real World Ophthalmology Podcast, a platform made for and by early career ophthalmologists and trainees to bring you content to enhance your education and your practice year round. My name is Nicole Bayich, and I'm a refractive cataract surgeon. Uh, I have a passion for teaching uh, young surgeons on social media, especially about the transition from being a trainee to being uh, an attending, because it's not an, always an easy one. And I'm honored uh, to be joined by my co-host here, Dr. Grayson Armstrong. Thank you. I'm Grayson Armstrong, and I'm an ophthalmologist, cataract surgeon, and medical retina specialist at Massachusetts Eye and Ear. And I'm super excited to be here today uh, talking about a topic that I need to learn a lot about with our excellent uh, guest of honor today, Dr. Lisa Nijum, who almost needs no introductions, but I'll give her one anyway. Uh, she's a board-certified cornea, cataract, and LASIK surgeon out of uh, Chicago. Uh, she's a licensed attorney, an innovator, and an assistant professor at the University of Illinois Eye and Ear Infirmary. Um, she leads women in ophthalmology as a CEO, has taught over 2,500 ophthalmologists, and mentors physicians through mdnegotiations.com. Using her unique MDJD dual degree, Dr. Nijam also advises leading medical device and pharmaceutical companies on new innovations. Most notably, she created www.realworldophthalmology.com, which you're all on right now, to serve as an educational resource to aid ophthalmologists and successfully transitioning into practice. Thank you so much for being here today, and welcome, Dr. Nijam. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here and honor to be here among such uh, distinguished colleagues. So I just feel privileged to be able to sit down and talk with you guys for a short time about one of my favorite topics that I think uh, really all ophthalmologists, not especially young ophthalmologists, but all ophthalmologists should uh, know, uh, and that being on negotiation. You know, I remember when I was looking for my first job, it was extremely stressful time. And there are so many things that you have to consider that it can feel very overwhelming. You have to juggle the money aspect, the location, you know, is it going to be a supportive environment and to figure out what's going to be the most important piece and is the practice telling the truth about what they're advertising? It's, it can be hard to, to really parse that out. I was first starting out and looking at all of my job opportunities. Uh, I remember thinking, I don't even know how to negotiate. So I also remember hearing that women tend to be bad negotiators, and I, I didn't want that to happen to me. So what I did is I went to all of my male attendings, and I, I asked them to help me negotiate. And one of them gave me an excellent piece of advice that we're going to touch on a little bit later. But when you're starting out for your first job, it's really important to make sure, figure out if you're going to be replacing someone or if you're going to be building from scratch. And if you're building from scratch, ask for a higher base pay because you're probably not going to meet their markers in order to get the bonus structure that they have laid out. That was the best thing that I ever heard because uh, I have yet to meet someone who was able to meet their target and, and get that bonus pay in their first year. So all ophthalmologists are going to end up negotiating their contract for their first job, but Fortunately, few of us get any formal training on contract negotiations during our residency or fellowship. 
And yes, while this is partly about money, it's also about protecting time and space to do the things you're passionate about, like carving time out for research or teaching, working with industry, or maintaining work-life balance. So all of this brings me to my first question. Dr. Nijam, at what point should trainees start thinking about the contract negotiation process? And is it too late uh, if there's already an offer on the table by a potential employer? So that was a great background, Nikki, and I think you brought up several points that I'll touch on. But I think uh, directly to answer your question, I think uh, ophthalmologists or trainees should think about negotiating from the minute that they start looking at a job. And the reason is because most of negotiation is done before you actually get that piece of paper that sits in front of you. Uh, You have to identify as you're looking for a job what, first of all, what your priorities are and what are the things that are most important to you uh, seeking your initial job. Uh, Is it, um, you know, hours that you're working? Is it the types of surgeries that you're doing? Uh, is it the, um, the vacation that you're going to get? Uh, you have to kind of have to have a real, I think, you know, come to Jesus moment where you sort of lay out what your top priorities really are and understand that from your own perspective. And then what are some things that would be nice to have, but that you can have some more flexibility on? And then when you are interviewing, you should be asking potential employers about these topics and see how their their expectations match your expectations. Because if they are too far, it may be difficult to come to negotiation to an agreement that's going to be satisfactory to both sides. Uh, I think that, um, you know, there is the field is wide open right now for ophthalmologists uh, to attain jobs. There are many more patients now and coming in the pipeline than there are ophthalmologists coming out to practice. And for all the ophthalmologists coming out to practice, there are a number of ophthalmologists that are retiring. So the workforce in ophthalmology is remaining at best, probably stagnant, uh, but the population that we serve is growing. And so that places ophthalmologists who are coming out or looking for a job in a great position. Uh, But you do need, ideally, what we want to do is try to find the best fit from the start because it is a hassle for both the employee and the employer uh, to uh, try and change jobs uh, after you've you know, been at location. Inevitably, data shows that most people end up doing that, myself included. Uh, for various reasons. But, um, you know, I think as we get better at negotiating and as we hopefully through real world ophthalmology uh, help highlight some of these um, things for you to think about that you maybe have, uh, you know, better perspective going in. Uh, You had a second question about if it's too late once a contract is on the table And uh, in my opinion, until it's signed, nothing is too late. And even after it's signed, sometimes it's not too late because, you know, at some point, if you're doing well and you're, you know, you produce well, there may be time where you can look at a renegotiation for a contract. Uh, But I think the best relationships are going to be where there's open communication and where you have an idea of what your expectations are and be able to communicate that clearly to the potential employer and also really to put yourself in their shoes and get an idea of what 
their expectations are and what their needs are for the practice and see how well they match with what you're looking for. I think that's, you know, such an excellent point uh, regarding timing that, you know, until an offer is formally signed that there's room to go. Uh, for, for my current job at Cleveland Clinic, uh, there was no job. Uh, I, I forced my way in to meet the chair and I, I made him hire me when he had zero money to hire me. He actually asked someone to retire early. Okay. So I felt, and, and people told me, you don't have room to negotiate here. And, you know, in maybe not aggressively. Okay. But, uh, you know, when my husband got a signing bonus, I got to ask for one too. You know, my husband who just signed on at the clinic too, he got a sign-on bonus. Would that be possible? <laughs> and so uh, negotiation can look differently depending on your situation. And yes, you know, depending on the situation, you know, you may not be uh, as aggressive as you might otherwise want to be, but it doesn't mean that you can't have room to go. That's always, you hit on actually one of my pet peeves, particularly for women. Uh, it's that, and there's a lot of data um, showing how women and men differ in their negotiations. But one of the uh, main things that you'll hear are women don't ask. And I'm so happy to hear that you did the exact opposite there. Uh, because, you know, <laughs> if you don't ask, the answer is always no. You know, that's it. I mean, if you if you don't ask, the answer is, is no before you start. Uh, right. But um, there are different ways that uh, perhaps it can be approached. And as you said, you were looking for a way that you could um, you could present your case to request to negotiate things uh, with keeping your expectations in check of how uh, you know how you wanted to fit in and how you wanted this job. Grayson, uh, do you have a negotiation story to share with us <laughs> or a question? I certainly do. I've had to negotiate various things at various points already. It's very interesting. I started out as a chief resident at my hospital, which is a attending position. That position, though, has a very large teaching role and very little clinical role. So in that role, I asked for things like a a part-time business degree, maybe they could help support me there, maybe they could give me a research assistant, maybe they could help provide me some funds for some research startup, and they could provide me like a, somebody to help me with my admin. Unfortunately, they said no to everything. I still took the job. <laughs> but then, so that was my first failed attempt. And then I went on and I stayed on as a cataract surgeon. And um, at that well, point... Can I pause you for a second? Because... You know, I think with both of you, uh, you did something that I think is really important in negotiations, which is being creative about looking at what you can offer and what you can ask for. Uh, you know, you're both in academic positions, but uh, some of these things can be asked for in private practices. Some of them can be asked for in private equity type groups. And so being creative about your asks to help support your ultimate career goals, I think is something that's really important as you're doing that preparation for the negotiation and you're doing that preparation for what you're seeking in a job. Um, you can think outside the box and see if you can, uh, you know, identify areas that, that they might be able to help you that are not necessarily just uh, money. And then the other thing too, is that any um, negotiation 
you know, maybe you didn't get it that time, but that's a step um, to move you forward in the next direction. And I recently taught a negotiation workshop for AAMC. And one of the things I, it was all to academic, um, mid-career academic uh, professors who were looking for promotion. And one of the things I highlighted there was that, uh, you know, it may be no right now because maybe the chair doesn't have money or maybe the department is, you know, in a crunch after COVID. But if you bring it up or you, you know, try to approach it and lay out your case for what you, why it would be good for the department of why you would want this and how this will help, you know, build a department for the future, perhaps you can identify you and your chair or whoever you're negotiating with can identify how you can reach that goal and what you can do to reach that goal. So um, I think one of the negotiators um, says, uh, it's not no until you hear no three times. So <laughs> I, did, I don't mean to interrupt you, Grayson, but I thought those are, I, I liked how both of you did that um, because you did it in your own way. And I think those are both helpful and it's, um, it's not a failed negotiation attempt. It's um, a, a stepping stone to see where, um, you know, how do you modify to move forward in the, in the next negotiation? And that's a good point because I signed on as a cataract surgeon, but because I had expressed interest in business and leadership and administration, and because I had expressed interest in research, they pointed me in directions where I could take on those roles. And so now I'm the director of our emergency department where I can implement changes there. I just today found out about a big grant, research grant that they had pointed me towards. And uh, yeah, it, they've opened up a lot of opportunities. So it's, it's really nice to, you know, it's never no, and it's, Sometimes a no for now, but you can keep pushing and, and just putting the seeds out there to grow in later years has certainly uh, come to be true. Uh, I do have a question for you, though, Dr. Nijum. Um, does the process of contract negotiation change if you're going into a private practice job versus an academic job? And what about within the private space if you're going into a privately owned private practice versus something like a uh, private equity owned practice? So that's an excellent question because it is, you know, each negotiation is unique and there are going to be aspects, the, the general principles of negotiation will be true across the board. Um, identifying what the other party's needs are, not just what they say that they want or that, you know, most people tend to argue based on positions versus interests. Um, whereas, you know, the as you develop your negotiation skills and negotiation is a skill, it's a life skill. Uh, and as such, you can uh, not only learn it, but you can improve your skills, improve your talent in it. It's not just inborn talent. Uh, but each negotiation that you do, it's going to require you to sit back and identify for that particular party. What is it that they're uh, looking for? What are their needs? Who holds the power in the negotiation? And that's going to be different in each of the scenarios that you mentioned. And I think that's also as the healthcare system becomes more complex, uh, that's also something that's important to kind of identify to make sure that you're negotiating with the people who are actually have the power to make the decision. And if, if you're not, is there something else that's influencing them who's, that will you know, influence the final decision? Uh, so, uh, you know, are there budgets that are outside of uh, their control? Are there other things going on uh, within the, uh, the organization that can affect uh, the ophthalmology department there? Um, 
And then, uh, you know, sometimes it's, especially with some of the more corporate locations, it's going to be negotiation uh, with their attorneys. And if it's negotiation with their attorneys, then you may want to bring an attorney and have, you know, the attorneys negotiate. I think uh, in, you know, most settings, it's still probably the ophthalmologists who are negotiating themselves. And so it's best um, in most cases, if you're going to be working with them to negotiate with them, because ultimately, as I said, it's pretty expensive for practices to bring on new associates. So they want to make sure that this works out as much as you do generally. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's um, so I suggest to most people that you learn how to negotiate uh, and be comfortable with coming in to ask for what you really want um, and be able to have those conversations with uh, the physician employers. And then if it is a situation that it's going to be your lawyer negotiating, uh, you also need to be able to have discussions with your attorney and, you know, inform your attorney of what you really want. And sometimes, you know, depending on their level of expertise in healthcare contracts, you may also need to, you know, point, point out to them what are some of the things that you're looking for as an ophthalmologist. You know, I've heard before that if you can find a lawyer who's, you know, in your specialty and can fight on your behalf, they understand the lay of the land. They understand how the uh, other people have negotiated for their job at the same practice, perhaps in the past. Um, they understand all the levers that can be pulled. Do you think it's worth hiring a lawyer on your own behalf or just going out on your own and doing it yourself? I think it is, a, I mean, you know, you're asking a biased person here because I am an attorney, <laughs> but I have uh, in my in my years of practice now come to realize that uh, when you want something done that's outside of your area of expertise, it is worthwhile to get somebody that that's their area of expertise. So just like, uh, you know, if I want a corneal transplant, I want to send it to a corneal surgeon. Uh, this, you know, I'm the corneal surgeon. Uh, the same thing when, you know, you're negotiating a contract or you have a contract. I think at a minimum, I would ha- make sure that you have an attorney who's reviewing your contract and, uh, and then, uh, you know, if there's somebody that can help you negotiate again, that kind of depends on the scenario that you are uh, working within and the kind of practice that you're working within. But uh, I definitely think that it's a worthwhile thing to have uh, an, an attorney or healthcare consultant at your, uh, on your team. I'd love to uh, hop in here with my experience because I think uh, it speaks to how attorneys can, their background and um, the helpfulness can vary. Uh, So I ended up uh, using someone who was the sister of my program director because she offered a special rate, um, you know, because I was a resident. And uh, it still ended up being pricier than, you know, other options. Uh, it was about $1,500. Uh, but she had spent what her what she would have spent in, in billable hours. Um, it would have cost me at least five dollars $6,000. Uh, and she went through painstaking uh, detail through my 25-page contract, what everything meant, what an evergreen contract was, restrictive covenants, what that meant for me. Um, and, and I felt so empowered. It was, it was not just 
having an attorney look over a contract. It was literally an educational course. Whereas I've spoken to others who used, you know, someone who was $500 and, you know, looked over their um, contract and said, yeah, 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 everything looks fine. And they didn't feel like it was very helpful at all. And meanwhile, they didn't negotiate a thing and really regretted the experience. Come to uh, my second job, you know, at Cleveland Clinic, my contract's literally one page. It might have been two. It might have been like one and a half pages. Um, But because I had learned so much with my first uh, contract attorney, I didn't need one for the second time around because I knew what everything meant. There there weren't a lot of words on the page either. (laughs) But um, I think it really depends on, you know, the quality of, you know, the attorney you're getting and what you're going to get out of that experience. So I I think word of mouth is really crucial uh, for that sort of thing. I think that's an excellent point and uh, something uh, that is so important to have an understanding of everything that you're getting into with a contract because unfortunately part of the impetus for me for originally starting MD negotiation and then evolving now to real world ophthalmology were the number of calls that I got from colleagues and friends uh, about you know things that happened in their contracts or things that happened in their job that they didn't realize that there was something in their contract and, you know, their group got bought by private equity. And now what can they do because there's a restrictive covenant or, uh, you know, different things that happen that you don't expect. Uh, you know, if everything goes smoothly, you probably never see what's in the contract. <laughs> what happens, the contract ends up coming into play when something either unexpected or untoward happens. And then, uh, you know, and then people are looking to see what you, you know, what you signed and what you have to abide by. So I think it's, uh, so I think it's great that you had somebody who, uh, who taught you enough uh, that you were comfortable when you looked at the second contract and also that the second contract, which oftentimes happens actually, interestingly enough, um, with attorney, with um, academic centers sometimes is that, uh, their contracts are much less complicated than the ones mm-hmm. that um, are in private practice. So. And there's nothing to change. They won't change it anyways. <laughs> well, so I always say that there's there's <laughs> everything can be negotiated, uh, but you know you may or may not get what you want. <laughs> so when I got recruited to my second job. Uh, they had, uh, they were as large as a university and they had a policy in place. They had like 500 physicians, uh, and they had a policy in place for their uh, 401k that you couldn't contribute in your first year. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, it was set up so that you couldn't start contributing until year two. And they said, well, I said, so it's great. You've offered me a great salary, but you know, what am I supposed to do now? Cause I, you don't have a way for me to, you know, contribute to my retirement. Uh, and they said, well, this is the way it is for all 500 doctors. So we can't do anything for you. And I said, well, could, could you though? Um, and so they ended up giving me a signing bonus. So there are, you know, it depends, you know, you have to evaluate your negotiation position also, because I can't remember uh, what one of you said earlier that made me think of this. Uh, you know, if you're doing everything right, you're eventually, hopefully you're going to end up in the, position of the person who is, you know, making the offer to you. 
And you have to think about it from their perspective. If you are encountering somebody who's really difficult to deal with and difficult to negotiate with, you might not want to hire them. <laughs> you know, you might get to the point that if you're too aggressive or you're too demanding and you don't have reasonable, you know, approaches to back up what you're asking for, uh, then that may be off-putting to the other side. And there are times, uh, you know, when I teach a full negotiation course where we talk about different approaches to negotiation and uh, there is a point that a deal is reached, but somewhere along the way, the, what, the item or what is being negotiated, there's damage to the relationship. And that's ultimately, you know, what you want to think about is, uh, you know, this is at the heart of negotiation is always improving communication, having great communication and bringing the parties together to find areas of mutual benefit and things that maybe are important to you as an associate and maybe not as important to the employer and vice versa. Perhaps something that's really important for the employer, but is not necessarily a big deal for you to do as an associate. And so the better communication you have, the better relationship you have and assuming, as you had said earlier, assuming you have a party that's negotiating good faith, um, if you're able to come to an agreement there, you're going to end up expanding that pie and you're going to end up with a long-term relationship that is uh, going to be beneficial for both parties. That's a great point. Uh, so I have a, our next question here. How do you know your worth as a physician and surgeon? Where do you start and how can you determine what salary you should you know, be asking for? And is this tied in any way to the benefits or bonus structure? Was that like one question or 10? <laughs> I mean, different facets of the same diamond. I see it. I see. Okay. So I'll do my best. I'm probably going to forget some of the questions, so you'll have to redirect me. Uh, but uh, so how do you know your worth? I mean, I think this is probably one of the most common natural questions to ask. And, you know, I think... Uh, there are lots of different ways that you can identify what salary range you should be in uh, when you come out of practice or into practice. Part of that, of course, depends on your specialty and uh, if you have specialty training and part of it depends on the location that you're practicing. So uh, the resources that you can look at, I think uh, your, your program oftentimes has um, access to, there's pooled data um, that I think it's, um, um, oh, I keep forgetting. MGMA. Thank you. MGMA uh, that um, I think most programs have access to that they can give you kind of a base or a range to start with. Uh, I think alumni are a great resource to ask because, uh, you know, maybe they've gone to a similar area or through, um, you know, a similar specialty you can talk to your attendings. I can't tell you how many programs that I've been at that uh, sometimes are great relationships with attendings and sometimes people are shy to ask. Uh, but, you know, your attendings oftentimes are your best advocates and they're the ones who will, you know, have an idea or give you an idea of what to expect. And if you're shy about asking somebody about what they, uh, what 
they think or what, you know, what they're making, you can always phrase the question in kind of a more general sense. So um, I coach people that, you know, the you can go and ask and, and you did the right thing. I actually tell female ophthalmologists to make sure that they're asking men and women. Don't just um, ask women because unfortunately, since we haven't achieved parity yet in many leadership positions, sometimes that may cause you to, uh, you know, to be asking uh for a, a lower rate. So you want to make sure that you've, you've asked a variety of mentors, but, um, you know, ask them for a range, ask them for what would they expect instead of asking, what do you make? Say, what do you think that somebody who has my experience and my education and what I'm bringing uh, here, what would you expect or what range would you expect me to make? And so that sometimes can make the conversation a little less awkward for people uh, who uh, don't like discussing that. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing is to talk to the recruiters. So the recruiters know what practices are offering and, uh, you know, and there are some that are very good, uh, like work with Jill Maher a lot. And I think she's, uh, you know, she's got a really good uh, handle and she is, has a lot of interest in making sure that she places people in good, um, good practices. And so, uh, so Asking people like that can be great to get some insight as far as what your uh, what your range salary range should be ex uh, expected. Those are amazing tips. So I have a question for you. Uh, in today's day and age, certain specialties are more popular than others, but it's really important to have physicians in the areas of neuro ophthalmology, pediatric ophthalmology the income to these fields may ostensibly be less, but there may also be points of leverage that can be used to try to make sure that if you go into these specialties that you're getting paid what you're worth. So I'm just curious, if people are interested in going into peds ophthalmology or neuro-ophthalmology, what can they do or what tips do you have to try to help them in negotiating their job? So I'm so glad you asked this, Grayson, because that was one of our goals at Real World Ophthalmology also is to make sure that young ophthalmologists have exposure to all the different specialties and have a wide breadth of knowledge and mentors upon which they can tap and ask questions to. And uh, one of the best conversations I had on this was with Tom Oding. And he said, uh, you know what, um, there are you can actually probably end up making more money if you do things right as neuro-ophthalmology and peds uh, than, you know, than a lot of other specialties. And I said, please tell me more. And so he said, first of all, since neuro-ophthalmology is in such high demand now, you could probably get an academic position in neuro-ophthalmology just about anywhere in the country. Uh, and you can, uh, uh, you know, you can structure it that, you know, a lot of neuro-ophthalmologists, if you really want to do surgery, you enjoy doing surgery still. A lot of neuro-op will do uh, some type of plastics fellowship. So they do surgery on the orbit. Some of them still do cataracts. So there are definitely ways that you can, there's a lot of value in the patient population that you're going to serve. You're going to be in great need. Uh, and it, with uh, academic institutions or even private practices, I mean, you they're, they're really in demand. And similarly for PEDS, uh, you can also uh, structure your practice uh, there as where you see adults as well. 
um, sometimes doing adult cataracts or adult strabismus, depending on your, you know, your desire, your flavor. Uh, and again, you're going to have your pick of the litter uh, as far as practices go uh, and whether you want to be private or academic. And so I think that there is, there's such a great need for both of those specialties right now. I think you have a lot of leverage and there are a lot of different ways that you can structure it to make it worthwhile and, uh, and really provide a huge service for patients and for the profession. Well, thank you so much. That's been uh, so insightful. Uh, and we always love hearing your, you know, incredible advice and tips. Any final last words of advice for young ophthalmologists about to enter the workforce? Yeah. So I think that, uh, you know, negotiation is a key skill to learn. I think we have to not be afraid to have those conversations and ask the questions that you want to know. It's intimidating at first, but this is because it's the first time that we're really choosing where we want to go as opposed to being matched somewhere and, uh, you know, being told this is where your next step is. So it's a fantastic time. You should enjoy the um, getting into the workforce. And the more you practice negotiation, the better off you will be. So if you spend the time preparing for the negotiation, identifying what your needs are, trying to put yourself in the other party's shoes, think about what their needs are. And then go into the job interview and subsequent contract negotiation with an open mind, with a deal-making mindset to try and figure out ways that you can come together and really you know, bring uh, the interests of both parties uh, to, to the table to find ways that you can work together for a mutual agreement. Uh, I think you're, you'll already be way ahead of the game. So um, good luck out there. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Nijam, and for being our guest of honor. It's uh, amazing what you've built here at Real World Ophthalmology, and thanks for continuing to educate us. Uh, knowing these tips before I went into my first negotiation as the chief resident probably would have helped me get at least one of the things I asked for. So I hope that the other people on this call and on this podcast uh, learn a little bit more than I knew and hopefully use it to their advantage. And I'm super excited to have um, all this knowledge shared with all of them. Thank you so much for um, for having me and for um, for being hosts on this uh, podcast. I'm really excited uh, to hear all the episodes that uh, that you guys are moderating and that you've brought guests together for. Uh, and just a reminder that the next Real World Ophthalmology meeting is in April. And if you haven't uh, already signed up, it's free. Everything we do is by physicians, for physicians. Uh, you can become a member of our community by going to the website, realworldophthalmology.com. And uh, you'll get access to all of our educational content and uh, learn about upcoming podcasts and our in-person events and everything else that we have going on. 